0: You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, thanks so much. And uh, excuse <clears throat> me, feel a bit husky at the moment, but uh, I'm really pleased to be here at Redeemer this morning. Uh, so much, uh, thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to come and share the word of God with you. Uh, At my age, I'd just like to correct Pete, I've been in leadership nearly 50 years, not just over 50 years. When you get to my age, it's important you make those distinctions. (coughs) So uh, my main ministry was in the Brighton Church, then uh, Church of Christ the King, there for 24 years, uh, now Emmanuel Church in in Brighton, and then I and Sue, my wife, to whom I have been married 50 years, uh, we... Uh, retired down to Bournemouth, and we, I was an elder in a voluntary capacity there for six years, but my son lives in Paul and leads the Gateway Church, Paul, which is part of the advanced family, as you are, and so a year ago, we felt season of life to make a change and to be with the family, so uh, we're from Gateway Church in Paul, where our son Matt is the senior pastor, and so from one advanced church to another, we bring Greetings to you this morning, and as I say, it's really a pleasure to be here. Now, we're going to go to the book of Acts and chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to read from verse 1, Acts 15 and from verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disputes and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled from Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done through the Gentile, among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Now, In the story of the early church, this particular event is a really critical moment. We're going to look at what is generally referred to as the uh, Council at Jerusalem, and it was a, a landmark moment that was critical not only for the early church itself, but has continued in fact to be critical for us as believers throughout the centuries of Christian history. What was decided there is vital for us in our understanding of the gospel today. Up to this point in the Acts of the Apostles, the church had been making great advance. First of all, uh, Jews had been becoming Christians. They had turned to faith in Christ as Messiah. And then increasingly, Gentiles were becoming believers and joining the church. And of course, the apostle Paul had begun his great church-planting movements across the Roman Empire. But at this point in the history of the early church, it is not Jerusalem, but it is in fact Antioch, which is the most influential and numerous church. And at this point, the Apostle Paul is based there in Antioch, and suddenly there's a crisis. So let's look first of all at trouble in the church. Now Antioch was a mega church. I don't know who it is who or who it was who decided that a mega church becomes mega when it reaches 2000 but that seems to be the accepted figure worldwide. And uh, Antioch was definitely a mega church. We know it was a church that grew to many many thousands. Not only was it a mega church but Paul and Barnabas were based there. And they were teaching many new converts that were coming to faith in Christ. So you can guess that Antioch was a really good church to be in. Thriving, uh, many people coming to Christ, very big, and it has Paul and Barnabas as its main teachers. But suddenly, there's trouble. And that's indicated in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this teaching brings them into conflict with the Apostle Paul and with Barnabas. And it's just a reminder to us that Christian churches, and indeed individual Christian believers, are involved in spiritual conflict. If you don't believe in the devil, then I always say, become a church leader, uh, because you soon will. Churches come under attack, and sometimes churches tend to come under attack after going through a time of great blessing. I remember many years ago being in a New Frontiers leaders meeting, and a very famous pastor at that time, a Dr. Krianzak, was visiting from Thailand. And he had grown his church to 10,000 in Bangkok. Now, even now, there's no New Frontiers Church of 10,000. And so you can imagine leaders of New Frontiers Churches were very excited to hear how you did this. And so we all gathered in and we listened uh, to this uh, famous pastor. And he told us about the blessings of the church and the growth of the church and uh, how the church had been advancing and then when he finished, it was a question time, and the guy that was there uh, said, Dr. Kranzack, he said, you told us all about the blessings and the growth of the church. Don't you ever have any problems? And I'll never forget that, uh, forget this moment. Dr. Cranczak, he stood there, and he kind of looked almost slightly puzzled, and he said, problems? No, I, I don't really think we've had any real problems. If you'd asked him that same question two years later, If I might uh, say this, you'll excuse my language, he would have said all hell broke out. Because in the following two years, they were raided by the police. All the staff at the church were threatened with imprisonment. Uh, They were accused of brainwashing young people. There was a huge split in the church and financial difficulties as well. And suddenly in a church where there had been huge amounts of blessing, all sorts of spiritual conflict came in. and Major difficulties and problems uh, were... Being faced. It's also true for individual believers. It says in the Bible that there are evil days. Evil days are not 24 hours. Uh, Evil days are times and seasons when Satan seems to line up all his big guns at once and fire them at you all at once. And suddenly you find yourself in problems and difficulties and challenges. And again, often that can come after personal blessing. Now, If you've never had an evil day, I want you to cheer up because you will have an evil day. And indeed, the pattern was actually set in the ministry of Jesus himself. You remember near the beginning of his ministry that Jesus is baptized by John in the River Jordan. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes on him. The voice of his father is heard giving approval to him from heaven and then immediately after that time of great blessing, we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the, Jordan, le- left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And that can happen. You can have a time of great blessing, and suddenly you find that Satan is against you. And it's an evil day, and all sorts of difficulties are coming in. When it happens, what we need to do is like Jesus did. We have to stand firm on our sonship. We have to confess the fact that we are indeed the children of God, the sons of God, the daughters of God, and stand firm, which is exactly what Jesus did during those 40 days. Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. Think of Job in the Old Testament, a righteous man, but he hit big trouble. And when there's trouble, we need to stand firm. And the local church can also, I say, have these evil days, these times of attack, sometimes coming after a time of blessing. You see people converted, some people healed, there's some growth, there's some advance, and suddenly there seems to be big trouble that confronts you. If and when it happens, there's a golden rule. Do something. And this is important. Don't just sweep trouble under the carpet. Because if you do that, all you'll get is a bumpy carpet. Well, at Antioch, they did something. Suddenly, there was conflict in the church. They had had great advance, great blessing. They got Paul and Barnabas there. And suddenly, there's teachers coming in saying, unless you're circumcised... According to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas are opposing this teaching, and there's conflict and issue in the church. And so what happens is that they send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, to the mother church, in order to consult with the apostles and the elders. So secondly, what's the issue? What was the issue that they were facing at this point? So we've seen that some were teaching that Gentile Christians could not really be considered proper true Christians unless, alongside faith in Christ, they embraced circumcision and the Jewish law. There were certain people coming into the church in Antioch, and really what they were saying was this. If you're going to be true believers, if you're going to be sure of your salvation, you've got to become Jews as well as believing in Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas, they are sent up uh, to the church in Jerusalem, and when they reach the church in Jerusalem, they find that exactly the same thing confronts them. Because you go to verse 5, and we read there, then some of the believers, and this is now in Jerusalem, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And the people who were saying this were converted Jewish Pharisees. In their pre-Christian days, these people had been extremely zealous for the Jewish law. And Paul himself had once been a Pharisee, and he'd been extremely zealous for the Jewish law. In a sense, they were good people, really. They were zealous for the law of God. They wanted to do the right thing. But they were saying that having come to faith in Christ, it was essential that you still kept circumcision and the law. You had to embrace these things in order to be true Christian believers. There's one commentator who puts it brilliantly like this. He says, The Pharisee Christians banded together... To make sure that no one slipped by Mount Sinai on the way to Calvary. That's a very clever comment. Uh, Mount Sinai was where the law was given. And so these uh, converted uh, Jewish Pharisees wanted to make sure that nobody got past the law on their way to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what was happening here was that circumcision was being added to faith in Christ. And this, my friends, was the issue. This was not a Jesus-only gospel. It was a Jesus-plus gospel. So faith in Jesus Christ was essential. Nobody was denying that. These Pharisees who had been converted to Christian faith, they weren't denying that faith in Christ was absolutely essential, but to faith in Christ must be added circumcision. And so it was, in fact, a Jesus plus gospel. And as David Pawson has said, add anything to faith, and it becomes the means of salvation. Now, circumcision is not our issue. But a Jesus plus gospel can very easily creep in. So the message is, believe on Jesus Christ, but then add something if you're really going to be sure of your salvation. And it may be that some of us here years ago ago actually grew up in an atmosphere that was somewhat heavy with this kind of teaching. And it's possible that some of you may have come from a background where the preaching was certainly believe on Jesus Christ. But then you found that it was also being suggested, but to a belief in Jesus Christ, you must add a list of things that you mustn't do. And so, for example, some would say, well, you mustn't drink alcohol. Or in some places, it was, you mustn't go to the cinema. Or many years ago, it was, you mustn't go to a dance. Even in some places, and I've in recent years met Christians who've grown up in this, you mustn't wear makeup. I've actually been very diligent about the last one in that list, but, uh, you know, there's this, this kind of list that gets added to faith in Christ, and very often the people who say it are very, very good people. They're zealous people. They want the best, but in fact, it's a Jesus plus gospel. There's a list of things that you need to add to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that in our churches, we found that the message of grace has delivered us from this. This is not our style. This is not the way that we teach. But it is amazing how it can still creep in. Uh, I had a friend who was a, a pastor who went to teach a group of our younger leaders in another country. It was a New Frontiers group of leaders, and it was in another country. And he was teaching these young leaders, and in the course of teaching them, he just happened to make reference to the fact that the previous Sunday back home, in his home church in the UK, he'd baptised a young man who dyed his hair blue. Well, he couldn't get beyond that. I mean, there was almost a riot amongst these young leaders. You can't possibly have baptised somebody who you know, dyed their hair blue. I mean, they were questioning his very salvation. How could he even be a Christian? If, in fact, he dyed his hair blue. I'm I'm absolutely certain that if these guys had had wives who dyed their hair blonde, there'd be no problem at all. But because they'd heard of a young man who dyed his hair blue, it was almost, my friends, it was almost like he had a riot on his hand. How could you possibly have baptized this guy? Now, what is it that we add to a Jesus-only gospel? And I don't want to try and fight yesterday's battles. But I think that there is a danger that we can sometimes add our personal opinion. We're not really too sure about him because he's not doing this. And then we bring our personal opinion of what he should be doing if he really is a true Christian. But I think it then also kicks back on ourselves. And I've had conversations with really good people over the years, and I can tell they're utterly insecure about their faith. And why they're insecure is this, that somehow deep down they feel that they haven't done enough to be sure. I want to be honest and say, I felt that at times, and I've had these feelings at times, and I thought, God, let me live longer so that I can really prove to you that I'm a Christian. And it's a feeling that we can have that we must do more to be sure rather than doing more because we are sure. And the danger of a Jesus plus gospel is always with us. And this was the issue that was facing the early church at Antioch and Jerusalem. It was faith in Christ alone or was it faith in Christ plus something? And this is what leads to this very famous first church council, the Council of Jerusalem. And I say it's really significant in all church history, not only for what uh, took place immediately for the Christians that were involved at that time. Now, the church, or the elders of the church and the apostles that are there, they, they have a big discussion about these issues, and eventually Peter stands up, Peter, one of the apostles, And what Peter does is to remind the assembled leaders that he himself had been commissioned at one time to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He'd gone to Cornelius, a Roman centurion who was gathered with his family and friends. These were Gentiles. They hadn't got any Jewish background whatsoever. But as he preached the gospel to them, they had believed and the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them and none of them had been circumcised. And so in, in verse 11... What we read Peter saying is this, no, no, no to circumcision, no to having to take on the law as well. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so what Peter is pleading for is a gospel which is Christ alone, which is not circumcision and which is not law. And then next up is Paul and Barnabas. And interesting, really, as we look back on this, from our perspective, we may be a bit surprised. Only one verse is given to what Paul and Barnabas say. I think this is probably because Luke, who is writing uh, the book of Acts, would really be convinced that everybody would know what Paul thought about this issue. But uh, what Paul and Barnabas clearly do is to talk about the way that they had ministered amongst the Gentiles. It's saying this in the verse here. Uh, It's how God had worked through them, had brought miracles, signs, and wonders, and God had worked through their ministry in the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles, and there was no requirement to circumcision that as they proclaimed Christ, the message of Christ alone and faith in Christ alone was enough. And now, Paul and Barnabas are saying, a flood of Gentiles are becoming Christians, and the Jewish law is not being imposed upon them. And so the apostles argue, do not add to the grace of God and to faith in Christ alone. And my friends, this is a battle that was not only fought at that Council of Jerusalem, but has been subsequently fought again and again through the generations of Christian history. It was the battle that had to be fought at the time of the Reformation by people like Martin Luther. A senior Catholic priest once said to Martin Luther, if you take away relics and pilgrimages and prayers to the dead saints, and all the devotional practices, what will you put in their place? And Luther said, Christ. <laughs> Man only needs Jesus Christ. And that is the teaching of the Bible. And that's how Paul explains the gospel that all that is needed is faith in Christ alone. Now, I realized as I was preparing this, this, this week, We're so familiar with expressions like faith in Christ alone, we can almost diminish it. You know, it's just faith in Christ alone. But the reason it's faith in Christ alone, my friends, is because Christ has done everything. So don't kind of diminish it, oh, it's just faith in Christ alone. It's faith in Christ because it is Christ who's done everything. And there at the cross, it is our condemnation and it is our guilt and it is our failure, and it is the whole stack of sins that are kind of ranged up against us to accuse us. It's every accusation that could be made against us, and Jesus takes all of that, and as he's nailed to the cross at Calvary, Christ is in our place bearing all that condemnation, all that guilt, all the charges that would be made against us. He takes them away from the wrath of God and carries them away in His own body with His righteousness being transferred to us as our sin is transferred to Him. And He does everything at the cross of Calvary, which is why it is faith in Christ alone. And the idea that you can add to the cross with circumcision or by not wearing makeup or by not dyeing your hair blue is ridiculous. Adding more will not do it. And for some of us, our biggest battle in the Christian life or for some of us who are looking in at Christian faith, you may still be taking an approach that means you're looking at what you've got to do. We need to break our reliance on what we've done or what we do in order to be saved. We have to break our reliance on a Jesus plus gospel. No, it's Christ alone. It's because of what he's done. And only then do we know real security and have true freedom and joy. I love the way that Paul actually expresses it, as the Apostle Paul writing on this theme in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9. He says this, I've lost all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So that brings us to the results. They have this council, they have this discussion, apostles, elders, leaders are talking together, Peter's had his say, Paul and Barnabas have had their say, and so we come to the results. And finally, it is James who addresses the assembly. Now this James is not the James who was one of the twelve apostles, because by this time he's actually been martyred, he's been put to death. This is James who is the brother of Jesus. But this James is now probably recognized as an apostle, and he seems to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so he's the one that sums up, and he's the one that brings the final judgment. And in doing so, In verses 16 to 18 of this chapter, he quotes from the Old Testament from the prophecy of Amos. And he does that to make it clear that the judgment that he's going to bring on this subject is based on Scripture. And then the verses that he uses from Amos also make it clear that there will be a work of salvation among the Jews and that is a reference in verse 16 to rebuilding David's fallen tent. It's referring to the fact that God will do a work of salvation amongst the Jews. But, more importantly for this particular council, and I'm not saying more importantly altogether, because Jews coming to Christ are just as important as Gentiles coming to Christ, but for the basis of this council, more importantly for the council is that the Old Testament also says that Gentiles will come to salvation. And so in verse 17, he says that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. And that, in fact, refers really back to what Peter has said back in verse 14, when he described how God first intervened to choose a people for his name From the Gentiles. Well, that's forecast. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. Amos said it hundreds of years previously that God would choose from the Gentiles those who would bear his name. And so James says look, Gentiles, in fulfillment of prophecy, are becoming believers and Christians. We are not going to go against the word of God by making it difficult for Gentiles who are now turning to God. And therefore, he says, no demands will be made on these new Gentile believers for circumcision. And all believing Christian men ever since that date have said, Amen (laughs) and Hallelujah. So, there's clear gospel truth here. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that is forever stated at the Council of Jerusalem. So significant for those early Christians, but significant for us 2,000 years later that that was made so clear in the Council of the early church. But then James continues. And if you know this passage of Scripture, if you're familiar with it, you kind of wish he didn't have we got a problem here? That's what it could appear like. Because having made this statement that they're not going to put these extra burdens on the Gentiles coming to Christ, he then asked the Gentile converts not to eat food offered to idols, to abstain from sexual immorality, and not to eat meat with blood in it. In other words, the Jewish kosher diet. And we think, hey, just a minute. He's adding... To Christ alone again. And surely we've got a bit of a problem here. Now, I'm going to put this across to you by way of an illustration, and uh, I hope this will really help you understand what's going on. I want you to imagine that I give you a bike, and I say, Look, I'm just going to give you this. Uh, It's quite free, totally free. You're not going to pay anything for it. It's your bike. I'm just giving it to you. It's not only a, a a bike that I'm giving to you, but it really is. It's a great bike. It's a very expensive bike. It's got uh, all the latest gearing. It's made from the latest lightweight materials. I mean, this is a superb gift. This is your bike, and it's free. It's yours. The only thing is that whenever you ride this bike, you've got to ru- have a T-shirt on which advertises Marmite. Now, you soon realize that this Free gift is not really quite as free as it actually seemed. You're having to pay for this bike by the fact that every time you get on the bike, you've got to put on this T-shirt, which is advertising Marmite, and besides that, you absolutely hate the stuff anyway. (laughs) My friends, if the offer of salvation is free, but you must be circumcised, or you mustn't dye your hair blue, or, 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 then in some way you are paying for your salvation and it becomes a Jesus plus gospel. We go back to the bike. I give you the bike and I say, this is free, this is a gift for you. There's no advertising involved. You have the bike, it's yours. But as I give it to you, I say, when you use it, will you please wear a cycle helmet and don't ride the bike on the pavement. Now think about this for a moment. You aren't paying for it. You are being asked to responsibly use your freedom every time that you ride that bike. And so if you put a helmet on, it will help keep you safe. And if you don't ride on the pavement, then it will help keep other people safe. My friends, James isn't reinventing a Jesus plus gospel here. He's simply saying, be wise with your freedom. Don't give pagans a chance to point the finger at you. Don't mess up your life and other people's lives. And in our current situation, he's saying to them, please just respect and honor your Jewish brothers. My friends, whenever we get ethical teaching from the Word of God, We're not adding to faith in Christ. What we're teaching is this is how you live free in your life in Christ. One example that I give to you, I don't know what you're going to do here in breaking bread in just a moment, but I know in many of our churches uh, we would be free to have alcoholic wine. We'd be totally free to drink alcoholic wine. But we choose to use our freedom responsibly because we fear or feel there might be somebody in the congregation who could stumble because of that, because of a proneness to being an alcoholic. It's just an example of how in churches we are free to do something, but we're responsible in the use of our freedom. So, this was the judgment, that it was faith in Christ alone. Now, I didn't read on uh, any further in the, the chapter, but just to say, actually, these verses run the full story through to verse 35. And what actually happens is that at the Council of Jerusalem, they decide to write a letter uh, really stating what James has uh, proclaimed, and that the leaders of, some of the leaders from the church together with Paul and Barnabas will go down to Antioch and deliver the judgment in Antioch by letter. And all of that is summed up in verse 31, where we read, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. The crisis is over. It's happy church in Antioch. It is a Jesus-only gospel. Redeemer Church Ealing, is it happy church here? Yes. Well, four of you are convinced. Is it it happy church here? (laughs) We proclaim the grace of God, a Jesus-only gospel. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Amen? Let's stand together, can we? (laughs) Father, we thank You so much for this glorious gospel that was proclaimed uh, by the first apostles, was affirmed and confirmed by that council in Jerusalem. We will not put burdens upon people adding burdens to grace. We thank You that Jesus has done it all. He's carried everything with Him at the cross. We thank you that nothing can be added to the work that Jesus achieved at the cross, that there at Calvary when he declared, it is finished, it was finished. There was nothing more that needs to be done. But Father, as we come to you in faith, believing in Christ alone, we want to be responsible, of course, in the way that we live. And Father, we pray that you will give us grace, that we will work out our salvation and our freedom in Christ, in a way that helps other people, helps us, and doesn't dishonor you. We thank you we haven't got a burdensome gospel. We thank you that we haven't got to put pressures and burdens on people. We thank you that we haven't got to bring in additions and extras. We thank you there's no small print to this gospel. We thank you it's writ large by the grace of God. Faith in Christ alone will save. Thank you for the freedom of this gospel. Hallelujah. Amen.